welcome to My Faculty Podcast at Walden University, created to provide further professional development and conversations relevant to faculty interests. This podcast is brought to you by the Office of Research and Doctoral Services. With me today are Sri Banerjee and Leilani Gelstad. You guys want to introduce yourselves again? Sri? Sure. Hi. I'm Dr. Sri Banerjee, core faculty for the College of Health Sciences at Walden University. Um, I teach courses for the area of public health, and I serve as chair committee member and university research reviewer for doctoral level students. Great. Leilani? Hi, I'm Leilani Jelstead, and I am faculty in the School of Psychology at Walden University. And I do research in the areas of ethical development and higher ed administration. And I am chair of Walden's Institutional Review Board, the ethics board that reviews uh, research studies before data collection for ethics. Thank you. So today's topic is using data derived from social media. So Sri, can you kind of fill us in as to what we're talking about with this? Sure, thank you. So when you think of social media and when you're thinking about uh, for putting a post in, in social media, um, you're usually thinking you're usually thinking about it as a user, as as somebody who maybe um, is is checking up on friends, um, looking at the um, you know latest uh, pictures that are up, um, you know everything that's fun. Um, but you know to to be thinking about it as a research tool, as a in fact as a powerful research tool. Now that's a different story. Um, th thinking about every post, every statement everything as an opportunity to assess sentiment. So, so when I say sentiment, uh, I mean um, the ability to um, understand affect, to understand mood. So um, the, the ability to understand what a person is feeling from the, um, the, the, the type of words that they're typing is, is something uh, only you know that we're able to only we're able to accomplish recently, um, and that is because of the um, advent of artificial intelligence. Um, and what has happened really um, over the last decade is uh, memory has expanded exponentially, and 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 the ability to carry um, large amounts of data in small. Uh, amounts of memory has, has allowed us to harness the power of artificial intelligence. And so um, this, this ability um, each individual has um, by using the correct tools. Um, and, and so, so this, is the, this is the backdrop or, or the premise behind understanding how you can convert and transform um, everyday social media tools like Facebook and Twitter um, and, and into robust research. So Leilani, are there ethical issues related to this? You know, for the type of data mining that Sri is talking about, we usually don't have a very extensive ethics review. Essentially, um, the relationship or the agreement that's set up between the researcher and the platform 
is usually handled on the platform's terms. And um, Sri, I don't know if you could say a bit more about that, but it would, um, different platforms and different companies certainly vary in terms of how accessible they make their data and, and then the tools that are needed to access and navigate those very large data sets. Um, could, you, could you explain a little bit, Sri, about the type of agreement you needed to set up for your research? Yeah, sure, Leilani. I, I I would love to get into that. Um, so one thing um, that actually th this was something that I didn't anticipate either was that um, there needed to be a Twitter development agreement, um, and and this was actually a process which uh, took a number of days, and um, uh, they they stated within the form that it could take longer. So uh, you know um, those those of you that may be looking into going into Twitter um, research, conducting this um, through and this something called an API um, where you're provided with a unique um, sort of key. Um, so th this is a, um, a, a long uh, serial key, um, which is uh, unique to yourself. Um, and, and so these you incorporate into um, an interface called Python. Um, so Python is, is, is actually the interface that you're using to conduct the data mining within Twitter. Um, so so that in, in order to conduct this direct sort of um, uh, extensive data mining, um, you have to be a Twitter, an, an approved Twitter developer. Um, and then only can you do the direct um, queries. Um, now, if you, if you want to, um, in, instead of going the big data route, um, if you want to conduct um, a, a different type of social media analysis, um, you know, there's opportunities for that as well. Yeah, I could say a little bit more about those. Um, Sri's type of research is, it's really exciting because it opens up so many more possibilities, like you said, in terms of the size of the data set, the scope, and how far you, you can go back in your searches. If someone, if a researcher were to instead just go onto the platform as a normal user, so not as a developer, just log into your own Facebook account or your own um, Instagram account and use hashtags or use the search um, bar to look for certain words, that's another way that some researchers have done different content analyses and, you know, identification of themes and patterns in social media behavior, it's um, it's a little bit less sophisticated and it's going to hit some limitations most likely in terms of how far back you can go and then of course how easily one can sift through the data if you're literally just scrolling through a, you know some search results. And um, we have had some researchers go that route though as users and that requires no permissions whatsoever. In fact, like I had mentioned, I think on a, a previous podcast, when people engage in social media, they're doing so of their own free will. And if they don't like something about it, they just either go away or, or stop engaging. And um, there's very little uh, in terms of um, power dynamics or power relationships, which is very different from you know research uh, data that might be 
accessed or collected through the workplace or through um, a healthcare setting or educational setting. And so um, anything that people are uh, willing to post online is equivalent to um, behavior that's out in public. And so it's observable without any special consent or permissions. And, um, you know, people do have the freedom to take down what they uh, posted a week ago, which is a little different from public behavior. If you're out in the, you know, town square and you do something and then you kind of, you know, don't want it <laughs> to uh, be out there anymore. You can't just go and erase it from everyone's memory who saw you. But when in social media, people can go back and edit their profile or their previous tweets or, or what have you. And so that's one interesting limitation of um, any social media research when you're just accessing it as someone from the public, you you can't see things they took down. And three, that's, I wonder if it, as a developer, are you able to still view things that people took down or deleted? Right, um, I, I um, usually when you go back um, to look for the revision, right, the original um, version, I, I'm not able to see anymore. Um, ah, okay. and, and yeah, so so that brings up, I think, an interesting point where what are the implications of seeing something edited versus not, right? Um, and and so every even every change that you make has an effect. Leilani, it seems like if somebody posts it, they don't do it with the understanding that this is going to be in a study. I mean, it it seems like somehow an invasion of privacy in a way, particularly if it yeah. was like a group or something like that. That's a great point. You know, um, and that I think is why the analogy of um, social media behavior being similar to you going out and doing something in a public park or um, out in, in some public space where um, you may be observed by others and, and there may be researchers in the public park. And th th that's the, those public spaces are one of the few places um, or the few types of, of um, settings where ethics boards and, and IRBs all over have said, okay, you don't need consent. If someone's in a public place and you want to observe them, um, as long as you're not interacting with them, you, you can do observations. Now, you mentioned the possibility of someone being in a group, and that's an interesting subset or particular um, context for social media. Let's use Facebook, for example, because in Facebook, you, uh, the administrator of a group can either choose to make that group public or private. And it's usually pretty clear, but again, not everyone is equally savvy about all the security and privacy settings on, on social media. So a researcher would definitely need to take it upon themselves to become very familiar with the privacy settings and the fine print about um, any groups that they might join, hoping to either recruit participants or even analyze posts. We've seen, you know, researchers um, just straight up say, yeah, I joined these groups for the sole purpose of recruiting participants. And I introduced myself at the beginning of when I joined and I said, I'm here as a researcher. And then, you know, right before I post my invitation, I said, I joined this group to recruit. That's the kind of transparency we would expect researchers to have as opposed to um, just lurking. Like, like uh, you know, if we said if the, the group were um, 
uh, and a, a Facebook group for parents of children with autism. You know, it's maybe like a, a support group of sorts and a resource group. And if the researcher themselves is not a member of that group, meaning if they don't have a child with autism, then it would it would obviously not be very ethical to just join the group and, and lurk without saying that, you know, you are there as a researcher. Um, if it was a public group, however, then it is acceptable to, to do that so-called lurking and just observe. And then assuming you have a uh, observation protocol, you know, a systematic way of, of noting, of coding and capturing and coding and analyzing um, the posts. And, you know, like Sri was saying, the different types of emotion engagement, emotion reactions, whether it's through words or through, emo uh, you know, emotion reactions or emojis, whatever they call them, when you like something or love it, um, that sort of thing. Um, if it's a public group, then that's fair game for observation. Hmm. Interesting. So Sri, what kind of data do you end up getting and how do you analyze? Yeah, I, I can get into that a little bit more here. Um, so it, it's it's really interesting how um, words, you know, to, to begin with, how words can translate into numbers. You know, um, when, when you think of words, when you're when you're thinking about um, uh, thematic analysis, um, traditional qualitative research, you're thinking about, you know, codifying words, um, creating themes, um, the the traditional, but um, but this is a little different. Um, this is uh, employing something called natural language processing. Um, this is a type of artificial intelligence which is actually distinct from the, from the more popular type that you might have heard of, um, which is called machine learning. Um, and, and so um, from that separate type of analysis, which uh, deep learning um, falls under, is 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 something that is not done here so what i'm focusing on here is specifically natural language processing typically when you're thinking about natural language processing um, there's there's a lot of uh, different components of uh what i would call something uh, cleaning you know a little bit of a uh you know you're you're eliminating common words um, for instance, when you're uh, when, when I conducted the search for vaccines, because I was looking for vaccine sentiment, um, and some of this research has been uh, presented. But you know, I, when when looking for vaccine um, sentiment, some of the common words were getting in the way. So uh, common articles, these terms um, were were those you know were seen commonly. I made sure to exclude those. This way, some of the more important um, words were, you know, were actually revealed um, when when the when the other words were eliminated. Um, so that's one way um, to to make sense of some of the social media data. But what is more interesting, again, the numerical portion, um, which I was um, telling you about, you can actually not only measure sentiment but you can measure something called polarity. Uh, now that's a little bit more complex than sentiment analysis. Sentiment is, you know, how positive you're feeling, how negative um, the messaging is. Um, and um, actually I, I used that um, initially when um, there were visitor instructions for hospitals during COVID and um, during the lockdown and there were a lot of limitations. I actually used that to assess some of the 
messaging that was created um, for, for visitors and almost discouraging. Hospitals were all across discouraging visitors and, and there was a lot of you know, negative words in there, which was really interesting. So, um, so, so there's a lot of applications for that portion of it. But, but again, the numerical portion and the polarity, that is interesting because that's not only looking for positive versus negative, it's looking at the differences. So how polarized is society um, from, from, you know, not only just um, all, all of the different things, but in specifically here looking at vaccines, um, how polarized. Um, and, and so what I ended up doing is, you know, comparing time ranges. So initially when the vaccine, what it turned out, you know, when the vaccine was first released, um, earlier in the year, there was a lot more, you know, um, positivity, less polarity. But as time evolved, as time went on, um, some of this polarity increased. So, so the, the, this is, you know, just kind of a, a ballpark sort of understanding and demonstration of how some of this, um, you know, some of this big data coming out of social media like Twitter um, can, can really be useful and more importantly, be useful to inform policy. Very interesting. Um, do you have to analyze it in a special way? Well, um, it, the, the way to um, analyze some of this data, um, you know, is, is using Python, um, using some of the uh, command structures um, and, and, and some of the coding um, that is uh, involved in, in this. Um, and the, 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 the coding structure is is um, somewhat intuitive. Um, it, it takes a little bit of time, but um, you know you start with the import command. That that's the first command because you're importing some of these some of the smaller uh, programming languages language um, in, into um, the interface. So import is 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 the first command, um, but quite you know a couple of lines of code and and then you're in business so leilani you think of any concerns that we should think about if we were to go this route that sri's been laying out for us no i can't from an ethics point of view it's fascinating and um exciting to hear sri talk about it and i love the idea that um for both faculty and student researchers, it's just there for the mining. And, you know, there's no uh, sitting around and waiting <laughs> to collect your data. It's there. You just need access to it. Yeah, it's very exciting. Really kind of cutting edge type data, I think. Well, thank you both so much for coming today. Um, really interesting stuff I had never heard of before. So that's always fun. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. It was thank a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today for Research Talk. Our music is by audionautics.com. And I'm Dr. Lee Statlander. Today's podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services.